Hello, I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. This is our Wednesday evening Bible study on 1 Corinthians. We've been working our way through um, pretty rapidly, I would say, um, but we kind of got hung up here in chapter 11. I think that's because uh, unlike food sacrifice to idols or even head coverings, which we talked about two weeks ago, uh, specific practice around the Lord's Supper well, that pertains to us. It's quite relevant. So um, thank you for joining us. Uh, let's see if we've got, we've got one live. So um, hopefully some others will join us live here, and that'll keep things a little bit more lively, I would say, as you, if you're able to post some questions in the comments below, either on Facebook or on YouTube, uh, wherever you are. And of course, if you're watching this later on tape delay, uh, you're free to of course, post your comments there later. Um, they'll still benefit those who watched. Um, they'll get a notification that there was a comment on a video they watched or commented on. Um, and, uh, you know, and then obviously I, I can respond to you via the comment thread below. So, uh, again, glad to have you. And what was the other thing? Oh, recording here from home. So you can see the praying man's back there. Um, the uh, internet connection at church is, was not great last Wednesday evening. And uh, that was really discouraging for me, but it was also uh, probably discouraging for you, too, because you couldn't see. Uh, so we're doing this here from my home. And God willing, it will go spectacularly. Obviously, it's going to be much higher quality. Okay, now a little bit of a recap before we dig into the text too directly. So there you go. Now you can see. Um, remember back at the beginning of chapter 11, uh, we were talking about the head covering and, and the customs and traditions of head covering, all right? And we talked about how it's not universally applied to us here in the church today. Uh, the reason being is that uh, it seems to be a, a more of a cultural tradition, uh, but one that uh, was helpful in, in, in regards to teaching the headship of the man to the woman, uh, and then, of, Christ, of course, Christ to the church. Um, so that's how Paul addresses the tradition. It's it's not that it's required, um, but that it is a helpful tradition if it's if it's retained, all right? Because it te- the way it teaches uh, the truth of the scriptures, and in regards to hair hair and whatnot. Um, but he's not he's not speaking um, from the scriptures or from Christ Himself, all right? So uh, it's not universally applied, even though. Uh, what he does draw from Scripture in, in terms of, you know, going back to Genesis, which you can see there on your screen, um, for woman came from man, verse 12, even so man comes through woman, but all things are from God. All right, so that's true regardless of whether um, the tradition, the local practice of the congregation or the, the uh, ethnicity or whatever their community is to wear head coverings or not. All right, that part is still true because, of course, it comes from God's word. All right, so hopefully that makes sense. Um, but this is, I th- again, like he did when he was talking about meat sacrificed to idols, chapter 8 had kind of a, for lack of a better, a better way of saying it, like a softball argument, um, kind of a simpler argument, uh, one that might be more readily received. But then he ramped it up when he got to chapter 10, um, where it was a much more severe prohibition. Um, so, and he's doing the same thing here. He's, gonna, he's talking about a tradition, a, a custom, in the local church, and then he's going to use this um, to drive into 
something that is not a tradition, but actually is an institution of the Lord, which is the Lord's Supper. All right, yeah, I see Grace has joined us, and Tim, good to have you both. And I'm just doing some recap here. Um, So last week we talked about the head covering, and then we moved into um, some practical matters with the Lord's Supper, all right? And so he's giving these instructions about head head covering, not to praise you, um, because you don't come together for the better, but for the worse, right? So he's heard um, maybe from, oh, what's her name? The woman, uh, Chloe. He's heard from Chloe that there's divisions amongst them. In chapter 16, he's going to refer to um, divisions uh, as a result. There's three, three different people that are mentioned there. And so there's like maybe either two parties or up to four different parties, warring factions, if you like, within um, the congregation. And he referred to that back in chapter one when he said, you know, um, uh, I planted, Apollos watered, but Christ gave the growth. Remember that. All right. Um, and he's saying, you know, make no distinction. Um, we each have our own vocation to you uh, and don't play favorites. All right. Um, and so there's divisions amongst them in the congregation. Now, one of the things we didn't talk about last week, or at least I alluded to it, and um, I think it's worth remembering, um, Paul here is really concerned about, about the way that they're practicing the Lord's Supper. And he emphasizes that. You see that in verse 20? When you, come to, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. And how does he know it's not the Lord's Supper? Well, it's not done according to the Lord's institution. That's the first point. Um, and, and this is quite evident to him because you can see in verse 21, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. All right? So um, what, what it sounds like is that there's a Roman kind of custom here. Um, that those who um, are wealthy of, of the uh, noble class, they're able to eat their meal at some point during the day, right? Uh, and then celebrate the Lord's Supper at the conclusion of this meal. We talked about that. Uh, but the, those who are in the working class or the slaves, um, they wouldn't have an opportunity to eat and to drink until after the workday is completed, you know, which could be quite late. And so then they would come and the best food had already been eaten there would be a limited um, amount of it. Um, the wine might not even be left. And those who have been there, so to speak, at the party for a while were already drunk. And then these people would come who are part of the same fellowship. And yet because of their need to work, um, they had not, there was not much for them left to receive. All right. So it seems like the, the Roman Corinthian um, what do you want to say? Culture was setting the agenda for the church's practice there. And it has actually divided the Christian congregation and even the Lord's Supper um, into separate meals and not shared communally. All right, so hopefully that makes sense. Uh, of course, Paul says, you know, um, you're despising the church of God. You see that in verse 22. And shame those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you in the way that, basically it's like there's a private congregation for the wealthy noble class, and then there's, you know, the larger gathering that, that includes everyone, but that one is not nearly as uh, elaborate or as uh, spectacular, all right? So um, he's claiming that they've divided, they've, they've created this faction 
that they distinguished where Christ does not distinguish. Right? Think about slave nor free, right? Jew nor Greek, male nor female, right? And we could include with that wealthy, poor, um, black or white, right? I mean, all the ways that we divide and stratify out our communities into layers, um, maybe for the sake of just distinguishing, but not really um, in a way that benefits the congregation. Um, Maybe a contemporary way that this happens is when, when the adults want the adult church, and so then they send the children away for children's church, right? And uh, God willing, they receive the same proclamation of the gospel in both places. Uh, but there's, I think there's a legitimate question to be asked there. What, what, do th- what is appropriate for adults that is not also appropriate for children, or vice versa, right? So let the community remain whole, one. All right, so then we talked about, we started to talk about the words of institution, but maybe we can do a little bit more detail today. Uh, especially in regards to this chapter. All right, so uh, beginning in verse 23. For I received, actually, you know what? I'm going to read a different translation. <laughs> For I received from the Lord um, that are what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was being handed over took bread. And having given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Keep doing this in my memory. All right. Oh, I didn't really need to scroll yet. All right, good. In the same way, also the cup after supper saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Keep doing this as often as you drink it in my memory. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All right, so we don't need to do a full commentary on this. You've learned quite a bit about the words of institution, um, maybe just from your instruction in the small catechism, right? Um, but maybe just to point out a few distinctions here in Paul's recounting of these words, um, the most significant differences are these. Uh, first, uh, in the cup saying, Matthew and Mark read, so you look at this in verse 25, Matthew and Mark read, this is my blood of the Testament, right? And here it's this cup is the new covenant. I would still say New Testament in my blood, um, especially here, translating this word diatheke, the Greek word, as a covenant. It does harken back to the Old Testament, um, but I think Jesus, by uh, prefixing it here with, with kainos, with new, is indicating that this is something quite different than the Old Testament covenant. All right, um, and we can talk as much about that as you want. So if you have a question about that, put it down there. Um, so Paul and Luke have this cup as the New Testament in my blood, all right? Um, second, Paul and Luke have the injunction to keep doing this in my memory, or in the archaic form that we translated, you know, in remembrance of me, all right? So that's Paul and Luke. And only Paul has that saying both in connection with the bread and with the wine. All right, I'll get a little bit more light on me there. All right, good. Uh, moreover, Paul is the only one here who has this last statement. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So that's unique here to 1 Corinthians. It's not um, in the gospel. Of course, uh, when Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, 
he had not yet been crucified, right? So, of course, Paul is the only one who would have this. But I think that phrase, verse 26, is Paul's explanation of what in remembrance of me or in my memory actually means. <laughs> so, the, the cup, the, the body which we receive and the blood that we receive is the body and blood that was crucified for us for the forgiveness of sins. Right? And in receiving the the body and blood, we receive forgiveness of sins that was purchased and won for us at the cross. All right, so um, so maybe think back about this elite class that we were talking about who had their own like separate Lord's Supper earlier in the day that was maybe, uh, I guess for lack of a better way of saying it, more special. <laughs> uh, you know, that they're actually losing touch with what the meaning of the supper is. Because the words of institution um, are repeated to remind them of why to celebrate such a meal in the first place. A reason that goes back to Jesus. Right? It's not just a, a private meal, but it's, it's actually um, given, and it's given for the community too. All right, so let's look at a few of these expressions here and just talk through them. All right, so he took bread. Right? We see that in verse 23. Right? He took the bread. Um, twice here, when, when Paul records these words, it says, the Lord that I received from the Lord, that which I also handed over to you, and it's translated here as delivered, fine, that the Lord Jesus, there is Lord again, um, curios, on the same night which he was handed over, right? So see, handing over and handing over. I know betrayed is a fine translation, but you get the idea. Then he took bread. Right, so the emphasis here on having that Lord twice um, is that this is, again, the Lord's Supper. It's not our Supper, it's the Lord's Supper. So these private meal people, they're missing the point. It's really the Lord's meal. Uh, and, and maybe this is a good correction. Um, this is from, I have a little quote here for you from, uh, actually, the CTCR, who's quoting um, Charles Krauth, I believe. Yeah, Charles Porterfield Krauth. Well, in part. And Werner Ehlert. All right, so the Lord's Supper is not the property of the individual Christian. It's not the Christian's feelings, thoughts, opinions, views, or even theology which decides what the Lord's Supper is. Charles Porterfield Krauth expressed it well. Christ is the center of the evangelical system, and in the supper, and the supper is the center of Christ's revelation of himself. The glory and mystery of the incarnation combine there as they combine nowhere else. Communion with Christ is that by which we live, and the supper is the communion. All right. Um, so we do have this handing over aspect, and uh, the bread, probably not much to mention there. Uh, this would have been the Passover bread, probably a thin or a flat cake. Yeah, CTCR stands for uh, Commission on Theology and Church Relations. Commission on Theology and Church Relations. You can find all of their um, opinions, their Theological opinions, they include faculty members from both seminaries. Um, I believe the president of the Senate sits on the CTCR. There's usually, there's a few uh, elected or appointed members as well. Um, the CTCR is actually who took the place of the seminaries after Seminex. All right, so Seminex, this is inside baseball for Missouri Senate folks. Uh, there's big schism breaking up in the Missouri Senate, and it largely came out of a distrust 
um, of the seminaries because of what was being taught there or what was revealed that was being taught there. All right. Uh, and in, there was a walkout, and then um, those professors who left founded an alternative seminary, which later became uh, LTS, Lutheran Theological Seminary, uh, at the campus of University of Chicago, which is an ELCA seminary today. All right. So, um, but not having trustworthy seminary faculty, then the Synod set up a commission um, to give theological opinions and tried to make sure that it represented both seminaries and had lay people and theologically astute lay people, I should say, and, um, and other important church leaders on it. Um, and so then when, when you have a question, you submit the question to the CTCR, a theological question, um, and if they deem it appropriate, they'll give an opinion. And they, they've addressed all sorts of topics, um, you know, some hot button topics, of course, um, but they even had a document, you know, about um, the Christian's approach to environmentalism, for example, or uh, they have a, um, some documents about human trafficking, which um, my band books podcast we talked about a couple weeks ago. Um, they actually have a document on that too. So um, CTCR, they're not theologically binding their opinions, um, but I, on the whole, they're usually very helpful. Um, sometimes less helpful, um, but rarely do I disagree just wholesale with what they're saying. So um, they have a document called The Lutheran Understanding of Church Fellowship. Uh, it was published in 2000. And uh, uh, we can link to it in the, in the comments below at some point. All right, so there you go. So the CTCR, and they, they largely will quote a course of scriptures, and then they'll quote other Lutheran, um, theolo- Luther himself, but other Lutheran theologians, the Book of Concord, our Lutheran Confessions, etc. All right. Um, this is my body. Now, this is not an ambiguous statement. <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, um, maybe not, not so much in the Lutheran tradition, but uh, outside of Lutheranism, amongst other um, so-called Protestants, um, this is contentious. Um, there's a lot of people who disagree with this ter- this one word here. Um, I mean, it comes from I me, or it is I me. It comes from, is it I me? That's the stem, I me. Um, this is my body. Um, so note, it doesn't say signify or represent um, as if somehow the bread must look like the body or something that it's like a placeholder or something like that. Um, this is the way that, uh, the small catechism says it, right? The sacrament of the altar is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under bread and wine, <laughs> right? So it's bread and wine and it's Christ's body and blood. Yes. And that's as, that's as much as we can say, cause that's as much as Christ tells us, right? It is. And that's enough. He's identifying the bread with his body and the blood, excuse me, the cup with his blood. And by the cup, he means the wine in the cup, by the way. Um, this is a, uh, what do they call that? A synecdoche, um, which is a, it's a figure of speech. Let's see, this is according to Webster. Figure of speech by which a part is put for the whole, um, as in 50 sail for 50 ships, or the whole for a part, as society for high society. All right, so when we say the cup, we mean not only the cup, but everything that's in it, which would include the wine. All right. So just as a, um, there are probably those who say you can have anything you want in the cup. Uh, actually, I know there are. <laughs> and no, uh, not this cup. Not the cup on the night he was betrayed or handed over 
This is the Passover cup, and this would have been wine, straight up. All right. Um, this is, is not a philosophical theory either, though. So this is an, another important point that I think we have to talk about. Um, we're not talking about um, something like transubstantiation, uh, which is uh, what we call uh, what the Roman Catholic position, that to best explain this, it, it appears to be bread and wine, but it is no longer bread and wine in essence, right? So the, the, um, the accidents, that is the things that we see or taste or feel, you know, the, the sensory stuff, it accidentally, that's using uh, Aristotle, but anyway, <laughs> that's what they do. They use Aristotle philosophy for this. Um, it looks like bread and wine, but it is no longer bread and wine. Uh, we don't go there. Uh, now, they would accuse us of something called consubstantiation. So it, be, it becomes Christ's body and blood while at the same time bread and wine. Um, I mean, I guess that's a fair accusation that, it, that it's two substances at the same time. Um, here's, a, here's a comment uh, from... Uh, no, we'll just leave it at that. I don't need to give you the comment. All right, so uh, rather we, we would simply just say uh, is means is. And with the bread, we receive the body. How is that possible? I don't know. It's what we call the sacramental union. Um, the, the bread and the body are not two distinct substances. That's what consubstantiation would say. There's two substances. We'd say it's one substance, and yet it is both bread and wine. Uh, flesh bread or body bread, something like that, and the wine is like blood wine. Um, and of course, the other emphasis here uh, from Jesus is for you, right? And I think that's essential that uh, you note that that's, that's there. This is, this is Christ. Off, I mean, this is really gospel. Those are gospel words. When it's for you and it's given for you, broken for you, um, that's the gospel. And that these, the words of institution are proclamation of the gospel. This is why we don't say them together in our practice, um, but rather the pastor preaches them, proclaims them to you. Um, and I like to sing them to you because the proclamation then is more deliberate, but also um, clear. And it's wonderful for children um, because they usually can remember them quite well because they, they hear the tune in their head, right? And they can sing it, right? Uh, and then I mentioned this, um, you know, keep doing. I, I'm not so sure why they translate it as this do or do this, right? But it's, because the, the, the verb here, uh, it's present active, right? It's, it's not a past tense. It's not, it's imperative. It's present active imperative. Um, it has a sense of keep on doing, all right, in remembrance of me. Uh, so as far as practice of the Lord's Supper, the implication here is, um, is that Christians still celebrate it. Now, if we didn't have Paul, if we didn't have Paul to, in 1 Corinthians here, I imagine um, that it would be far less common that people would practice something even resembling what we call the Lord's Supper, despite being recorded in all, uh, well, in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I think folks would say, well, I'm not so sure um, that that should be a universal practice of the apostolic church, that it's instituted in the way that baptism is clearly instituted. Um, but on the other hand, because we have Paul, uh, 
an apostle, and we have then his testimony. And of course, we have the, all the uh, record of the breaking of the bread, say, for example, in Luke's, um, Luke part two, <laughs> the book of Acts. I mean, we have that too. But, but here, very explicitly, we know that the words of institution are part of the, well, part of the practice of celebrating the Lord's Supper, according to the apostle. And so this is apostolic testimony. It's binding to the apostolic church. This is how we do it. And we're under that um, indication. So we have this perpetual memorial to Christ, right? And the memory is of his death. Right, his, his suffering and death. Now, this fits right within First Corinthians, of course, right? Because we talked about um, at the beginning, I, we preach Christ and Him crucified, a stumbling block and a rock of offense. Right, that theme was set up right at the beginning, um, and of course, it's connected to the Passover, which was a memorial meal as well. Right, so it happened every year, and Christ is our Passover Lamb who has brought us out of Egypt, right, the slavery to sin. All right, so I think there, that's quite a bit on that. Uh, in my memory, all right, so it says in remembrance of me, and I, I mentioned that that's kind of archaic. It's one of those examples because it's a liturgical text. We use it now liturgically. This ana, anamnesis, uh, we translate it consistently, you know, in my remembrance, uh, in my memory. And uh, again, this is connected to the Passover, that the pass, original Passover was a memorial day. So we talked about this last week, I think. Yeah. And um, um, the whole, for the Lord's Supper, the whole act of the, do, of the doing. So the taking of the bread and the cup and the, and the proclamation of this word of gospel attached to the bread and wine that gives Christ body and blood, the eating and drinking by the Christians. I mean, the whole act is the remembrance, right? And actually by receiving Christ's body and blood in a way you, you too are being crucified, right? Because it's an act of great humility um, to come and receive in your mouth um, that which you cannot have of yourself, which is forgiveness of sins. All right, and it doesn't, it doesn't come because we imagine it or because we, you know, um, because we do, all, well, even if we, I don't know, we use red wine or something like that, that the memory of it isn't the thing. It's doing it, in my memory, as in to remember um, his death until he comes, right? And to receive forgiveness of sins, of course, which he says. Uh, the Lord took the cup, and we talked about the cup includes the wine. Um, it does not say forgiveness of sins here in Paul, and it's probably worth mentioning that, um, but it's not really, <laughs> it's not necessary to get too hung up on that because you have the covenant, the testament in my blood, all right? Um, there's no substantive difference of meaning here. Um, the testament, the shedding of blood, this is pointing back to the sacrifice, all the sacrifices of the temple, before that the tabernacle, but namely of the Passover lamb, that um, it shed its life to redeem the life of the people, right? So Jesus dies for the sins of the people to forgive them. So you have the Passover lamb does that. You have the sacrificial lambs of the, of the tabernacle and temple. You have the scapegoat as a similar um, kind of theme there. All right. And then again, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. All right. So the, I like the way that um, uh, this commentary says it. 
the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper is an acted sermon and an acted proclamation of the death which it commemorates. Right? So this is, and I think I mentioned this last week, it's also considered then um, the pulpit of the laity. Right? So yes, you don't get to stand up in the pulpit and preach uh, because that's not your office. But by coming and receiving Christ's body and blood for your forgiveness, um, you are testifying to your neighbors around you um, and to your immediate community that um, you stand at the foot of the cross. Your life is lived um, trusting in Christ's mercy that was won for you by his suffering and death. All right? so, so it's actually a proclamation. It's your preaching by doing, by receiving. All right? And actually coming forward and saying, I need forgiveness of sins, uh, that's perfectly a great proclamation right, to others. Now, if you boast and say, you know what, we had the sacrament, you know what, we had the Lord's Supper last week, and I don't think I've sinned that much since last week. You're actually denying the forgiveness of sins that Christ uh, has purchased and won for you, in a way, right? Um, So uh, there's nothing wrong with receiving the sacrament frequently, um, as frequently as you would like, actually, um, to be forgiven, Uh, which is what our Lutheran confessions say, uh, that we offer the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. That's Sundays for us. Um, on feast days, so think, I don't know, Good Friday or Monday Thursday or uh, some saint's day, whenever we gather, and often as um, there's, there's desire to receive it. Right? So some, some congregations in the Missouri Synod celebrate the Lord's Supper you know, six, five, six, seven times a week. Um, they offer it frequently. It is possible. All right. So now, um, having reminded them of this liturgical context, um, then he moves on uh, to the problem in the church. And um, this text, so all the way from verse 27 through to the end of the chapter, uh, there is a lot of both church practice, congregational practice, and pastoral practice um, that we have drawn from this text. Right, so this is a key text. It's worth really working through in some detail. Um, then you'll better understand why we do what we do. And it, it's not to say that this isn't the only place where we can get some of that teaching, um, but this is the primary text for our practice of the Lord's Supper. Um, all right, so I better read it. Therefore, all right, so now that's a connection or a little hook as uh, Martin Chemnitz calls it, <laughs> all right? So there, this, this bit here, this big examine yourself, um, it's just a heading. We really don't need them. As a matter of fact, I wish, I, I think maybe I can turn them off. I don't know if I can. Because they're really not helpful. Show, uh, I can't turn them off. All right, so we get headings either way. All right, but this is immediately following on the heels. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord, there's that word Lord again, in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. 
For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. All right, so there's actually more on this topic a little bit in Second Corinthians in the book, or the letter, I should say. Uh, but you get, we come back to this main theme at the end, right? Uh, which we talked about, which was at the beginning of the chapter. When you come together to eat, wait, eat the supper, wait for one another. And I would say even uh, to eat at all. Right, and this uh, will come up again, I think, in, in chapter 14. Let's look here. Yeah, when you come together, there it is. Each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Right. So this is doing things in order uh, according to vocation. All right. So if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Right, so we don't receive the Lord's Supper to satisfy bodily hunger. Um, that would be similar to, yeah, the, the eating and drinking in the restaurants of the, of the pagan temples, of Dionysus, for example, there in Corinth. That's not why we receive the Lord's Supper. Um, that isn't to say that you can't fast before coming to the Lord's Supper. Think of the way the Catechism says, you know, fasting and, um, is fine, outward training or bodily preparation. Uh, but what is necessary? Faith in these words, given and shed for you. Right? So you can fast to prepare to receive, um, but that's not why you receive. You're receiving it for forgiveness of sins. Right? Um, so if you're hungry, just eat at home before you come, lest you come together for judgment, lest you come and do this whole split thing, and the rest I'll set in order when I come. All right, so going back here, whoever, therefore, we should go back one more verse. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup, see, parallel to verse 26, 27, of the Lord, again, that emphasis, this is the Lord's supper, this is not your supper. You don't get to choose how it's given and uh, how to receive it. In an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. All right, so we got to talk about that. Eating unworthily. So to eat unworthily is to not discern the body, which he says here in verse 29, all right? Uh, and by the body here, he's not talking about the church. He's talking about not discerning the bread and the wine, the body and blood of Christ in the sacrament, not receiving it in faith. So think about how the small catechism says it, right? Um, what is necessary faith in these words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins? Um, and in addition to not, res not actually discerning the body and blood in the, under the bread and wine, uh, they're also sinning against one another by not showing love uh, or consideration for the poor and the needy, which we heard back a few verses back, verses uh, 20 to 22. Uh, and by, by not discerning the body and blood and by sinning against their neighbors in the congregation, they're sinning against Jesus. And that's what makes them unworthy to receive it because they don't believe the words of institution, and they also don't believe Christ's own words about love for neighbor. Um, the, the, the sin here against the Lord's body and blood, 
right? And body and blood are together uh, back in verse. Oh, so the majority text in the Nesli Oland actually omit and blood. Maybe we should look at ESV on this one. Let's see what they do with it. I'll make that a little bit bigger for you. There we go. Yeah, it's a little bit different. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood. Oh, they include the blood of the Lord. Mm. Right, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Um, again, there, there might be an emphasis by some saying that, well, eating the bread, you can't sin against the Lord, but if you receive both the body and blood, you can. That's not what Paul's getting after here. And when he says body, he's thinking body and blood go together, I would say. Um, actually, Paul, well, maybe Paul or one of his uh, friends in Hebrews talks about this kind of eating and drinking as well. So let's look at that. Hebrews 6. Yeah. Here we go. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. There's a lot of emphasis on tasting here for good reason. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. All right. Um, So that's Hebrews 6, right? Um, And then it comes up again later in Hebrews 10. Um, And tradition has it that Paul wrote Hebrews, by the way. How much worse the punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant? There's that sacramental language by which he was sanctified, made holy, and has outraged the spirit of grace. All right, so much like what we see in 1 Corinthians, this idea that there's a judgment against those who receive the body and blood, not discerning, not believing, and then thus sinning against God. Here in Hebrews, it's quite explicit, um, both in chapter 6 and 10, that, they, um, that there will be a judgment against those who do not receive this um, in a worthy manner. Right, so an unworthy or worthy, it actually has nothing, really nothing to do with, with you, so to speak. Um, but it actually come, it, it has to do with your faith, which is given to you and flow from the words that are spoken. Um, so, your your, but actually, your faith doesn't make the thing what it is either. So, let me get back to our text here. Uh, oh no now we're in john 6 that's not where we were first corinthians 11 i think we're in 27 or so yeah there we go all right so two things i just said and i need to repeat them for you the first is um faith is necessary to to receive the sacrament in a worthy manner but faith is not necessary for the sacrament to be the sacrament that includes the faith of the pastor So even if the pastor doesn't believe that these words are anything but just recitation or or magic words or something, um, he doesn't actually believe them himself, it doesn't matter. Uh, There are the words of Christ and they do what they say, regardless of the one speaking them. All right, so that's really important. And then, um, or the faith of the one speaking them, I should say. Um, But also, faith is necessary in order to receive it worthily. And so, uh, in the... 
uh, I'm going to say Formula of Concord. Yeah, uh, Solid Decoration 7. There's actually a very explicit term for this. It's called the Mandacatio Imperium, or the Mandacatio uh, Ignorum. What is it? Indignorum, um, which means that's the mandible, the Mandacatio, the eating of the impious or the ignorant. It actually brings hurt and harm upon you. It doesn't matter whether you didn't know that you shouldn't receive the Lord's Supper or that you actually just don't believe it and you want to receive it anyway. Either way, you're still receiving Christ's body and blood in your mouth and you're eating and drinking, okay? So in order to receive it rightly, um, faith. Faith in, namely, not just this absent idea of faith, but faith in Jesus, especially in those words. This is my body, this is my blood. That is what's necessary. So this leads us then to the topic that's uh, probably a hot-button topic for some, but uh, so-called closed communion. All right. Um, so we see this from the earliest records of the church that, um, that the preaching of the gospel was for everyone, regardless of um, status, class, um, where they came from, whether they're a member of the congregation or not, whatever that member word means, um, whether a newcomer or a latecomer, whatever, everybody gets to hear the preaching of the gospel. Um, But the Lord's Supper is for those who have been examined and absolved. And that's usually done under the practice of the local congregation exercised through her pastor. So the pastor examines and absolves, aids the um, potential communicant in the, both the instruction of God's word, the preaching of God's word, attached to the sacrament, what what is it, um, but also just simply ask them, do you believe these words? That's what it means to be examined. Do you believe them? And they say, yes, that's the pastor's job. They say, no, I don't actually believe any of that. They say, then it's not good for you to receive this supper here today. Right? Um, and so if you had not been examined and absolved, you would actually be sent out. Um, and you didn't even like sit in the pew and watch. Well, they didn't have pews. Uh, stand on the side and watch uh, the reception of the supper. You weren't even uh, to be there. All right, so there's a, co- there's a couple things here. Well, I guess there's a whole list of things, uh, implications for you as Christians um, to recognize here. Where you eat and drink the Lord's Supper is a confession of this, that, that you believe what they believe and teach. All right? So if you receive the sacrament at a, at a Roman Catholic church, it's not just between you and God. It's, it's frankly not. That's what Paul's talking about here. This is a congregation. Um, you are confessing unity of doctrine with that congregation. Maybe, maybe that's by implication, but it's certainly present here. right? Um, so you can't participate. This is all Christians, not just pastors. Can't participate in, in non-Christian worship services. Because now that's like it's very similar to the argument about meat sacrificed idols. And then by inference, again, I don't think it's explicit here, but I think it's inferred by Paul. You don't participate um, in the celebration of the Lord's Supper if you're not a Christian, right? If you don't have faith in these words, you don't receive the Lord's Supper. And it's not offered to you either. Um, again, the realities of what we're receiving in our mouth the eating and the drinking, it isn't created or altered by our faith. All right? So what you believe in is happening 
doesn't really matter. Except for, it does matter for you to receive it rightly if it's Christ's Supper, right? I, I've had a, I'll give you an example. I had a, um, someone who was communing at a non, um, well, it was, some, it was a church that denied that, that the bread is Christ's body and the blood is Christ's wine. Or the wine is Christ's blood. There we go. All right, so they denied that. Um, and this was a man who wanted to remain a member of our parish, but also wanted to commune there. I think his wife went there or something. And he said, well, it doesn't matter that they don't believe it's Christ's body and blood because I believe it is. I'm like, actually, it does matter because you're confessing unity of faith with them um, by eating there. Um, that's actually not the Christian supper because they deny the word of Jesus. And if we want to use what Paul said earlier, they're actually eating and drinking with demons. They're following after the teaching of demons, which is pretty harsh, but that can happen even amongst Christians, right? And we call that heterodoxy, where there's a mixture of the teaching of, of our Lord and the teacher of, of the devil, teaching of the devil. Um, so when we commune, we don't commune as individuals, really. Uh, we commune together, we participate together um, as the body of Christ, uh, but to receive together the body and blood of Christ. Uh, yes, we individually receive in our mouth. It necessarily involves the individual uh, and the individual's faith, uh, but that's not what makes it what it is. A couple more things that you might think of. If you don't discern um, the body, uh, then that's unworthy eating. Again, as we talked about, pastoral supervision um, is needed, I think, to determine uh, and to admit to the supper, and that has a long tradition, maybe not quite apostolic, but um, that's the tradition of the church, that that's the pastor's job. When there are divisions in the congregation, remember that's been the context here in chapter 11. Um, when there's divisions, that usually means that for a time, those who are causing the division or are involved in the division until they can reconcile, none of them are admitted to the Lord's Supper. Um, I haven't ever ever practice this i don't know of churches that have um, but it's true if you can't commune together if you can't receive christ's body and blood together if you can't actually reconcile to one another then you shouldn't receive it together um this was actually our gospel text last sunday matthew 5 right from the sermon on the mount all right if you know your brother has a sin uh, has um, has something against you um, leave your gift before the altar go and be reconciled to your brother first before receive you know laying your gift before the altar and we have applied that to the lord's supper as well um and also differences between denominations that is what they practice what they believe um might exclude some from the lord's supper in in our congregations uh, even if they re- understand that it is christ's body and blood they believe that even if the church teaches that um, maybe there's other doctrines that are contrary to God's word, um, and thus um, they, they have this mixture. Okay, now, saying all of that, no one comes to the supper truly worthy and well-prepared. I mean, they do, God willing, according to the small catechism's definition from Luther. But as far as having like purity of heart, pure doctrine, a perfect confession of faith, um, that's, well... I haven't met anyone, including myself. All right. Um, what is necessary is faith in these words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Um, so, let's see. We've talked about uh, discerning the body a little bit. 
Uh, there's probably more that we could do, but we don't need to. Pastoral supervision we talked about. Again, it's, I think it's inferred here, um, but normally that's how the church exercises. And it's not about forbidding people from communing, but rather um, the pastor, and, and Paul here is doing the same, is encouraging, encouraging you to change, right? That the Holy Spirit would have his way with you, uh, convert your heart so that you receive in a worthy manner and for your benefit, right? Um, as long as there's sinful divisions in a congregation, probably should cut the sacrament off from them until, they, until those divisions um, cease to exist, right? Or until there's reconciliation by the work of the Spirit and forgiveness of sins. Right? And, and again, that's the context here in 1 Corinthians. So um, again, it may not be explicit that you must not, but it certainly is clear here. Um, as far as let, let's see, where is this? Let each examine himself. All right, yeah, verse 28, you see that. Um, as much as the pastor, you know, can ask you your confession of faith, uh, as much as you might stand before the congregation and um, confess the faith, like, as if, what? Um, oh, yeah, your confirmation, right? <laughs> yeah. What uh, Paul is actually saying here is to examine yourself. That is, every time... Um, that you go to receive the Lord's Supper is to consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Consider how you've sinned um, against the Lord. That is how you've been selfish, how you've loved yourself more than your neighbor or than God. Uh, there's actually some great tools for doing this. Uh, one is to use the Christian questions and their answers from the small catechism, which are in the hymnal. Uh, I think that's page 329, 330 in, in the Lutheran service book. So you can do that. Um, another great tool is called a bite. Spiegel. Biked Spiegel. Yeah. It's a kind of a strange word, German word. Um, it just means a confessional mirror. Spiegel is a like a mirror glass, right? So um to to actually consider the Ten Commandments. And there's a number of these. I have a few of them printed that are in the back of the church at uh, St. John. Um, you can find them online. If you just Google Bike Spiegel, you'll find a few. Um, um, there's a great one from Dr. Ken Corby, now deceased and sainted. But um Basically, um, or doc, and uh, Wilhelm Leia had a wonderful one in his catechism as well. And it, it just goes through the Ten Commandments and asks questions. And I usually get through maybe the first commandment before I'm already like, okay, I got enough to, that needs forgiving. Let's confess my sins. Let's be forgiven. <laughs> All right. So um, anyway, but that's what Paul's encouraging is, is individual examination um, that you... I mean, because ultimately, you're the only one who's going to know whether you believe, right? Um, yes, the pastor can examine, can ask questions to see, you know, have you been well catechized? Do you discern the body and blood, at least with your lips? But as far as what's actually going on in your heart, um, unfortunately, you're the only one. You're the only one. So self-examination is part of our practice, and uh, it's worthy to do. Uh, maybe a few points on this. First, um, as a Christian, you, you examine your heart and say, do you really believe that it's Christ's, Christ's physical body and blood are, are present um, by his words? This is my body, this is my blood. All right. Second, um, do you have faith that is desire to receive the Lord's Supper according to God's promise? Right. And again, the Christian questions and answers do this. So, a good, a good way to do this. Um, 
A third maybe fruit of self-examination is that you recognize that by communing, um, you are receiving this with other Christians and that, um, that it's a sacrament of unity. Uh, I think, yeah, from that CTCR document, this might be helpful. I have this in the notes here. Oh, where should we pick up? Yeah, right here. All who commune must examine themselves, and through repentance and faith, they must find the divinely created willingness to remove divisions and to preserve unity with fellow communicants. All right. This will include the, um, the resolve to amend one's own life for the sake of the church unity and witness to Christ. So one of the reasons to practice the Lord's Supper uh, regularly is that um, it forces, it actually forces Christians to see that um, it's not possible to be a part of a Christian congregation and to say, hold a grudge against another member there, right? Because in order to, to do that, you have to sin against Jesus, against the body and blood, because you receive from the same cup and receive um, from the same loaf, so to speak, as Luther would say, or as Paul said back in uh, chapter 10, verse 17. So all of this is kind of wrapped up together, um, but it's really important um, that you examine yourself. And then um, not only does that, again, examine yourself according to God's word, not only does that set your heart um, straight with God, but also with one another. And then you receive the sacrament to your blessing, all right? Um, maybe another question here. This is maybe a side note, but this, with regards to this discernment, discernment of the Lord's body and the ex- examination of Himself in verse twenty-eight, um, the question comes up: What about children? All right, what about reception of the Lord's Supper by children, and how young? It's always a question. It keeps coming up, especially uh, recently. Um, you know. Sometimes people trot out Luther's famous statement. Well, even an eight-year-old knows uh, what the church is. It's uh, sheep hearing the voice of their shepherd, right? And then they say, well, then an eight-year-old should be able to commune or something like that. Um, The practice in our church has been that uh, we don't commune to infants, and that's pretty much never been practiced amongst Lutherans, with some exceptions, um, people who were schismatic. but. we do commune those who confess faith in these words, according to the small catechism, right? And there's no, there's nothing here, it's not even talked about here, there's really nowhere in the scripture that talks about any kind of, you know, age, like eighth grade, sixth grade, whatever it is, whatever number you want to throw out, um, as to when they can examine themselves and when they can discern the Lord's body. Um, as far as, as I'm concerned, when they know the words of institution, when they confess the faith according to the creed, the prayer, Ten Commandments, when they know um, and they trust in their baptism, they confess that with their lips, then they commune. Then they're, they're welcome to the table. That's how it goes. So, um, you know, that might be a little controversial, um, but I'm not interested in traditions of men when it comes to the Lord's Supper, especially with the Lord's Supper. Um, same with baptism. Traditions of men, Mm, fine, I guess. Not if they get in the way of those receiving um, who are worthy and well-prepared, who have faith in these words, as the Catechism says. Um, So, to examine is a pretty heavy word here. This is uh, dokamazo in Greek, and it's not just simply believes um, or repents, right? Those are different words. This This is a 
a hearty examination. Right? It's a it's a strong consideration. Um, it's used in First John chapter four when he says, "Test the spirits whether they are from God." So it has that sense. So I don't know about him. I know infants um, don't do this, and even very young children. Um, but also, I would say then too, um, we don't usually com- commune those who are comatose um, or who are unconscious. I mean, we can't really because they they can't do this. They can't examine themselves. All right. So that does mean that sometimes um, I've had folks that once communed and then say, for example, Alzheimer's, they no longer, you know, I've actually had this happen. I say, I held out the bread for them to receive. And uh, this was a man who had Alzheimer's. And he said, what is it? I said, it's Christ's body. And he said, why do I want that? And I said, okay, that's fine. <laughs> I pulled it back. And then I just preached to him, right? Because he couldn't discern it. Okay. And that's unfortunate, uh, right? But you can die not receiving the sacrament, um, trusting in your baptism, and die in saving faith, right? He didn't deny the sacrament. It was due to his uh, uh, mental situation, right? Same thing with uh, those who are deaf or dumb. Um, you know, we're, we're more we're careful, more careful um, because of not wanting them to eat or drink to their arm. Uh, but again, this isn't really what Paul's talking about, um, communing children. Um, this is what Luther says about it. In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul said that a man should examine himself, and he spoke only of adults because he was speaking about those adults who were quarreling among themselves. However, he doesn't here forbid the sacrament of the altar to be given even to children. All right, that's Luther. Uh, in, I don't know what year. I don't have that here. Okay. And... Uh, Again, Luther's talking about children who've been instructed and recognized the Lord's body and blood are given under the bread and wine and have examined themselves, right? However that works. So, um, let's see. We talked about the body in the church. Now we got to talk about the judgment. <laughs> I know we're going a little bit long. Eh, we can still get there. Yeah, it'd be fine. Um, many are ill. So, this is set in contrast Many are weak and sick. You see this in verse 30? Yeah. This is set in contrast, actually, uh, with what we're going to find out in chapter 12, uh, verse 9, about spiritual gifts, um, namely that there are those who have the gifts of healing. So we have this church that has, been, has received this uh, apostolic blessing, a unique gift, that they have the gift of healing, that they can actually heal the sick. And... Um, What was I going to say about this? Oh, and now, uh, but, there are the, but they are also receiving the supper to their hurt and harm, and it's actually making them ill in a way that they don't recover, right? Um, so, so there's a contrast that Paul's setting up here. And this is a sign of God's judgment. He's taking away the gift of healing, and he's bringing sickness upon them, uh, which is a way of showing them that they are sinning, of course. At least that's what Paul is saying here. Um, this is what uh, Ignatius uh, of Antioch says in his commentary on, on Ephesians. He says that the Lord's Supper is the medicine of immortality, the antidote we take in order not to die, but to live forever in Christ. It's designed to serve, um, according to the large catechism, as a pure, wholesome, soothing medicine which aids and quickens us in both body and soul. Right. So now if they're receiving something that's meant to be a medicine that brings healing, 
and it's now hurting and harming them, then they know they're not receiving it uh, in the way that it ought to be. Now, as far as the dying, <laughs> many of you sleep, it's euphemism here uh, for death. And uh, there's some question, are they spiritually dead or are they actually physically dying? Um, but this, this is not spiritually weak and sick, I wouldn't say, because we're talking about body and blood, we're talking about receiving in the mouth. So yes, there's spiritual death, but there's also physical death. And again, this is unique maybe to this church. I don't know that this, I don't know of cases of this happening outside of Corinth, right? Um, but it's worth um, heeding the admonition here is that they, they are a testimony to us. If you receive this in an unworthy manner that is outside of faith in Christ's word, then um, it, it can hurt and harm you. And, even, and especially spiritually, right? Um, and then you look here. We should talk about 31, 32. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. All right, now this is a little bit softer. He's been pretty strong language. And now he's softened it up a little bit. Um, you know, this is more of like what we might call, I guess, fatherly discipline, right? Or a fatherly judgment. Um, that if we just judge ourselves, we're not going to be judged, right? Because we don't, we can't discern our error. But when we are judged, that is passively by the Lord, we're chastened by him, we're corrected, that we may not be condemned with the world. So he, he's saying, you know, again, I'm doing all this because this is for your blessing, this is for your benefit, that you receive the Lord's body and blood in, in, a, in a manner that benefits you. Uh, and then notice again in verse 33, he calls them my brethren, all right, my brothers. This is again a gentle, um, a gentle word um, to conclude his argument that, that the sacrament should be read, you know, received according to the Lord's institution. There's no more of this separate private meal for the wealthy right, and then not feeding or taking care of the poor of the congregation. None of this self-centered behavior, which selfish behavior, which is sin. Right, but rather, uh, and maybe even just separate the Lord's Supper and don't even celebrate it with um, the other meal. Right, eat at home, uh, come fed, so that when you come, you receive it for the benefit that it's given. That is, for as a New Testament, a new covenant in my blood, for your forgiveness, for your blessing, to proclaim the Lord's death. Let it be, let it be liturgical. Um, don't try to make it serve this other purpose of trying to feed your bellies. All right, because that's what's causing some problems here. So make a clear distinction. Uh, I love to do it this way. You know, think of like on Easter Sunday, right? Receive the Lord's Supper and then receive your Easter breakfast, <laughs> okay? Or your, your Easter ham or whatever it is your tradition is, right? Rather than the other way around, having breakfast, well, that might work too. You have your breakfast, then you're full, and then you come for the supper and you receive it not to be fed or to, be, to get drunk, but rather to, um, to be forgiven. And then he says, you know, there's more I could say, <laughs> but I'll get it in order when I come to visit again. All right. So I'm looking here. There are four of you tuned in. Thanks for joining us. Um, I don't see any questions. So I thought that might be a little controversial, but maybe not. So I tried to cover a lot of bases here and, and show you all the ways that this text has been applied uh, into the life of the church. So. Again, it's uh, good to have you. Glad to have you here this evening. It's nice to do it from home. Uh, the kids are little kids are in bed, so it's quiet. 
which is why I don't like to do devotion in the morning here because it's not quiet. Um, but also, uh, you know, high quality internet connection here. So that's good too. And uh, next week, we're going to move on here to spiritual gifts, which are in chapter 12, um, which is, well, that's probably actually a little bit controversial too. So it'll be worth uh, digging into that deeply. So Lord be with you all, and we'll see you again, well, in the morning for daily prayer or uh, next week for Bible study. God be with you all. We'll see you soon.